Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome to Livermore and the Bankhead Theater. A distinct thank goes, thanks goes out to the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory for providing this exciting science series for students and the community. As this is the last of the series, I want to thank Richard Farnsworth, the Education Outreach Manager of the lab, for his time and energy for producing the series so all of you can grow your interest in the lab and science. I'd also like to thank Marsha McGinnis. She's the one that does all the graphics and all the artwork that you see up on the screen. So I would like to bring them out and say thank you and you give them a warm... Thank you. Thank you. Our topic today, it's a breeze, using the wind to power our future. Well, we've all seen, seen the wind flowers that grace our hills, the valley hills to the east. Now, I call these uh, flowers because that's what they look like to me when I see them sprouting over the tops of the hills. They started over 20 years ago grow, and started one of the largest concentrations of windmills in the world and a tremendous study for their use. Now they've been ellipsed by bigger and more efficient wind flowers all over the world. Today's presenters... Dr. Julie Lundquist of, L of the lab, a scientist, biology teacher Brett States from Tracy High School will explore how much power can be collected from the wind, how that amount compares to our demands, and how the weather forecast help wind turbines provide even more clean, renewable, and reliable energy. Julie received her BA in physics and English from Trinity University, followed by an MS and PhD degrees in astrophysical, planetary, and atmospheric science from the University of Colorado at Boulder. In the Atmospheric Earth and Energy Division at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, she leads initiatives and research into wind energy forecasting for the Department of Energy and Industrial Partners. Brett States has been teaching middle school and high school science for 10 years. He's been a staff developer for K-12 Alliance, as well as the science coordinator for a science and technology magnet school. He has a BS in secondary education from the University of Nebraska. Please put your hands together and welcome Julie and Brett. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, we're very excited to be here to talk to you today about wind energy. And to kick things off, we're going to start out with a round of science on Saturday Jeopardy! <laughs> And this is your lovely host, uh, you know, lovely. Not, not lovely host, <laughs> this is your charming and exciting host, Brett States, who will run Jeopardy. All right, here we go. Welcome. Did everyone uh, have to wait to get in here quite, quite a while? Yeah, well, we appreciate it. Hopefully, it'll be worth your time. We're excited to have you here in a packed house. I have three contestants with us here today, and contestant number two is really nervous. It's okay. We'll be all right. I'm going to have you introduce yourselves and tell us uh, what school you go to and what grade you're in. Um, I'm Megan. Smith, I go to Wilson's Mall School, and I'm in eighth grade. Thank you. Let's give her a round of applause. I'm Allison Giotti. I go to Wilson's and I'm in eighth grade. Let's hear it for Allison. <laughs> Alex. Yeah. Alex, sorry. I'm Michael Hall, and I go to Wilson's Middle School too. All right, same school. <laughs> we didn't plan it that way. Promise. I went up and got volunteers, and they weren't all sitting together. Two of them were, but they're from the same school, so here we go. Let's play Jeopardy. Four questions. 
multiple choice. Um, please, audience, quiet. No help from the audience. And here's the first question. What is the name of the wind resource area in the hills east of Livermore? And here's your choices. The wind resource area in the hills east of Livermore. Is it A, Altamont Pass Wind Farm? Is it B, Ruby Hill Wind Farm? C, Los Vaqueros Wind Farm? Or is it D, Poppy Ridge Wind Farm? Ooh, they're quick. Do, 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 do. Help me out. Do, 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 do. Okay, contestant one thinks it's B. Contestant two thinks C. Contestant three thinks C as well. Audience, what do you think it is? Uh-oh, let's see. Reveal the answer, and it is A, Altamont Pass. That's okay. That's okay. We have three more questions. Three more questions. Question two. What nation had the most installed wind capacity at the end of 2008? Julia, you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. Um, I'm assuming that you guys might not know what installed wind capacity is. Okay. So when we say installed wind capacity, we mean the amount of energy that you can collect from wind turbines that have actually been put in the ground and are generating electricity from the wind. So it's not just the number of turbines, but it's also how big those turbines are. Okay, so here's our choices. We're looking for the nation that had the most installed wind capacity. Is it A, Denmark, B, United States, C, China, or is it D, Germany? A, Denmark, B, United States, C, China, or D, Germany? Contestant one thinks C. Contestant two is going for... C, C across the board. Oh. C for China. Audience, do you have a guess? Oh, mixed reviews on this one. The answer is B, United States. Ah. That's all right. So this is kind of an interesting development because we know that China is developing very rapidly. And actually, in the last year, they doubled the amount of energy generating capacity from wind that they had before. But even after they doubled, they were only at 12,000 megawatts of energy. And we in the United States are at 25,000 megawatts of energy. Germany, we just passed recently, they're at 24. And Denmark is historically the home of industrial scale wind energy. So they were leading the world for a long, long time. And in fact, like 20% of their electrical power needs are fulfilled by wind. But they're a small country, and they don't use as much energy as we do. So, you guys will probably be right in the future, but this is a good guess. All right, question number three. Here we go. What is a megawatt, anyway? What's a megawatt? Here's your choices. The rating of a typical laser pointer. B, the rating of the world's longest-running light bulb in the Livermore Firehouse. C, the total rating of 10,100-watt light bulbs or one for every other house in Livermore. It's kind of long, but if you guys want to turn around and read with me, that's okay. Or is it choice D, one of the sixth generation descendants of James Watt, who developed the steam engine? We're looking for a megawatt. What is a megawatt? Okay. Contestant one thinks C. Contestant three is going with C. Contestant two is weighing her options carefully. <laughs> Oh, it's unanimous. C. Reveal the answer, please, audience, you think? Yes, they got it right. Good job. Ten points. We're on the board. Congratulations. Ten, ten, and ten. And the last question. We're tied. Three-way tie. Going into question number four. Here we go. One installed megawatt of wind energy capacity 
can provide power for how many American homes? One megawatt, one installed megawatt wind energy. Is it A, 2.5 homes? Choice B is 250 homes. Or choice C is 25,000 homes. They're all going to go at the same. Audience, what do you think? Uh, the answer is... Oh, we changed. Now, wait a minute. Is that your final answer? Psst. Contestant one. Psst. We're going to get a tie regardless. It is B, 250. That gives us a three-way tie. Let's give our contestants a big round of applause. And thank you for playing Science on Saturday, Jeopardy. We have some prizes for them. Now I have to redo my prizes because we're not a grand champion. That's all right. There is? Was that the third one? There's four questions. It gets through me for a loop here. We have the coveted Saturday, Science on Saturday, Rainbow Slinky. There you go. And yes, it will go down the stairs. There's one for you. Thank you. And I think I've got some more in here. Slinky. There we go. And Julie, who was nice enough to give us these other prizes? Well, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory works with several companies in the wind energy industry. And these t-shirts were donated by Iberdrola Renewables, which is an international company with offices here in the United States, in Portland, Oregon, and in Pennsylvania and New York. And they install and develop wind farms and then operate them and sell the power to utilities. All right, let's give them one more round of applause as I escort them off stage. Thanks. So Brett and I have a lot of exciting demonstrations and Science on Saturday Jeopardy and things like that in store for you today. And in between all of these fun things, we'd like you to learn a few little bits. We have five items that we would like you to learn today. First, we'd like you to remember how human beings have traditionally used the power that's available in the wind through history. Number two, um, how the wind develops. I'm a meteorologist, so I get really excited when I talk about physics and atmospheric flow and weather and things like that. So we're going to talk a little bit about how the wind develops. We're going to look at how the resources available from the wind vary across our nation, the United States. And we'll compare how we currently use energy today, mostly electricity, to how much energy the wind could theoretically provide. And last, we'll talk about some of the work that's ongoing at Lawrence Livermore, how we can use weather forecasting tools to help um, rely on wind energy in the future. So... How have human beings used wind through history? Does anybody have any ideas? Do you want to shout out? Sailing, I heard. Okay, that's a very good idea. And here we go. We have these kind of cool boats used in Egypt and in China. And these boats with very unique sails are from the Indian Ocean, and you'll probably recognize these yacht-type structures that are typical Western types, boats, types of boats. People also use the wind for fun, not just to you know, transport themselves or their materials from place to place. This guy who is using his knowledge of local meteorology to windsurf and kite surf is actually a scientist at Lawrence Livermore. So scientists can and do have fun outside of work, so don't be discouraged about going into science thinking that it's always you know, tedious and boring. We really do have a lot of fun, especially at events like this. A couple years ago, there was a really cool archaeological discovery on the island of Sri Lanka, which is in the Indian Ocean, just off the coast of India. 
In that location, people had been making a special type of steel that was called Damascus steel to make these massive swords that had a unique curvature that were really, really strong. So if anyone encountered a soldier carrying a sword made out of Damascus steel on the battlefield, they were instantly afraid because this was really powerful. And the reason it was so powerful is because the people on this island were smart enough to figure out how they could use the wind to make their furnaces really, really hot. So this is a kind of a schematic diagram of a furnace. So here's where they have a fire going to melt the constituents of steel. And typically, heat from a furnace will rise all the way up through the atmosphere. But they were smart enough to use the aerodynamics of the wind to make a lid on top of this furnace to get it super, super hot in here so they could make this incredible steel that had uh, very unique characteristics. So people have used the wind for, uh, for weapons and self-protection. People have also used the wind for music. This is a, a diagram of a model of a pipe organ that was developed in the first century AD. Um, and people have also used the wind for very practical purposes for grinding grains into wheat. So human beings need energy from food. We grow wheat and then we grind the wheat berries into bread, into the kind of wheat that we can use for bread and other goods. And of course, you're probably familiar with the beautiful windmills in Holland in the Netherlands that they have traditionally used to pump water out of the areas where they want to live and farm and into their rivers and in the nearby sea. So now this brings us to the question, um, where does the wind come from? Anybody have any ideas? Do you think it's, go ahead. Did you look at my slides before? Okay. Yeah, our, our friend in the audience said uneven heating of the Earth's surface, which is exactly correct. But before we figure that out, a lot of people thought that there was you know, a Greek god or some other type of god, and this is the god of Aeolus, who used to blow the wind to help his friends and restrain the wind to um, harm his enemies. But since then, since those times, <clears throat> we've figured out that it's a balance of actually three different forces that generates the wind that we have here on Earth. So the first of these forces, and I'm hoping that everybody has out their pieces of paper to write important things down, is unequal solar heating due to pressure gradient forces. And we'll explain that in more detail in a little bit. Second, there's another force, or apparent force, caused by the rotation of the Earth. And scientists like to call that the Coriolis force. And third, the friction that we have at the surface of the Earth caused by trees and buildings and, and all types of structures coming up from the surface, that frictional force also affects how the atmosphere moves. So let's think about these in more detail, and let's think about unequal solar heating. And the reason solar heating has an effect is because warm or hot air rises. And Brett has a demonstration to help bring this point home. Really? Yes, I do. Who got that question right? I think they need a prize. Was it right here? I'll give you the choice. Do you want the slinky or do you want the puzzle? Slinky. slinky. Good job. Ready? Let's give him a hand. That's a good job. All right. And with his correct answer, we're going to simulate that unequal heating of the Earth's surface with some simple items you probably have at home. Maybe not nice beakers, but any glass item that's going to hold a pretty good volume of water. Thermos of hot water, we'll start with that. If I have enough hot water in there. It's okay, I got the backup thermos. We're okay. So what's going on with the molecules inside the hot water? These guys are on fire in front. I'm going to give someone else back here a shout out. What? 
Hot molecules, what are they doing? They're bouncing around. Good job. Good answer. I think he needs a prize. Let's give him a hand. You guys want to pass that puzzle back to him? Just pass it straight back to him. Good job. All right, so just like he mentioned, those molecules are absorbing a lot of energy from that hot uh, water. They're bouncing around off each other. And our second container is going to be ice water. So you can probably predict based on his answer what those molecules will be doing. There is some movement with ice water, but not a lot. Even ice itself, frozen, those molecules tend to vibrate in place. So less movement, less energy. Keep that in mind as I get this ready. That should be good for the ice water. All right, now, see a lot of these around. Make sure you're recycling these plastic bottles, right? We've got a balloon secured to the top. We're going to put that in the hot water with all that energy. Wait for a couple seconds. So inside, there's air molecules. Those are in turn moving rapidly, increasing pressure, expanding outward, up into the balloon. Okay? So now what do you think is going to happen if I put in ice water? It's going to deflate. Let's see if it really does. So now as molecules slow down, right? loss of energy, and there it goes. Back down. again. All right. <laughs> okay, back to you, Julie. Okay. Thank you very much, Brett. Now, the reason that it is important that hot air rises is because the sun heats our earth in different ways, depending on where we're located. So this is kind of a schematic diagram where the, earth's, the earth is tilted on its axis, and I hope that you all know by now that the Earth has a tilted axis. And in this picture, where it's northern hemisphere winter, so November, December, January, or February, in the northern hemisphere, we get very diffused light from the sun. But in the southern hemisphere, they get a lot of incident solar radiation. The sun's rays are directly hitting the southern hemisphere. In the summertime, the opposite situation happens, where the tilting goes in the other direction, and we in the northern hemisphere get more direct sunlight. So over the course of an entire year, which part of the Earth is going to actually be getting more solar radiation? Is it going to be the northern hemisphere, the equatorial regions, or is it going to be the southern hemisphere? Equatorial regions, very good. Okay. So because of that, we have areas of high pressure at the equator that are always going to be trying to move towards the poles, because high pressure is trying to move to low pressure. And so you know from your own experience that the wind in the northern hemisphere does not always blow from south to north. So something else must be going on to balance that pressure gradient force. And that force is called the Coriolis force, which is an apparent force induced by the rotation of the Earth. So our Earth is always rotating with a period of about 24 hours per day. And because of that, things that are moving on the Earth appear to have curvature because of the Coriolis force. So let's watch this movie for a little bit more of an explanation. And in this movie, the merry-go-round is in place of the rotating Earth. To an observer above the merry-go-round, the path of the ball appears straight, while to someone sitting on it, the ball appears to curve to the left. This exemplifies the Coriolis force, 
whereby to an observer on the rotating Earth, the path of an object appears to be deflected. And this is a result of the Earth's rotation. Rotation. <laughs> Very good. I wish we had a prize to give everybody something for filling in that sentence. So we have the Coriolis force. And with the Coriolis force, and we eventually have a situation where we have air that's at high pressure trying to move to low pressure, but the Coriolis force makes it veer off in the northern hemisphere to the right. So in this case, with high pressure here and low pressure there, the wind will actually move along these lines of constant pressure. And that's what happens high up in the atmosphere, where we don't have the effect of frictional forces. But if we think about what happens down close to the surface, where we have, like I said before, trees and buildings and all kinds of stuff to exert some drag or slow down the wind, then we actually have to think about the force of friction. And friction slows down the wind, and it turns it a little bit more. So if we have the same high pressure and low pressure, we have a similar Coriolis force, but frictional forces make the wind veer off back off to the left. So to summarize, for your notes, we have a pressure gradient force due to unequal solar heating. We have the Coriolis force due to the Earth's rotation. And we finally have a frictional force due to structures that we have at the surface of the Earth. So when you put all of these together, we have global wind patterns that look a little bit like this. And this has kind of been a big picture averaged sense. So down here at the equator, we have hot air that rises just like the air in that balloon and tries to move towards the poles. So it rises and moves towards the North Pole and to the South Pole. And then it creates these cells of, of uh, convection. And where we live in North America, we're in the mid-latitudes. So we experience westerly flow. So wind is usually moving from west to east in the mid-latitudes. Closer to the equator, the overall picture is that the wind moves from east to west. So let's think about that as we look at a simulation uh, that was carried out by my colleagues at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory of flow using a global climate model. So this type of computer simulation takes the whole atmosphere and chops it up into little blocks and then solves equations for each block. And then we can see in the results, we can see the moving patterns of clouds and of wind. So in this visualization, we're looking at the Pacific Ocean. Here's Australia, Asia, um, the mountains of China are represented in brown there. And we'll be able to see patterns near the equator. We'll be able to see patterns of motion from east to west. And then when we look at the higher latitudes, we have motion from west to east. So you can see these little blobs of lots of clouds. Those are actually hurricanes. But because they're in the Pacific Ocean, we call them typhoons moving along in the equatorial band. And then when they come up, they end up swirling back around and moving back to the west towards us in North America. So this is the global picture of, of how um, air is moving around. And you probably know from your own experience that the winds vary a lot more day to day and from place to place. And part of that is because of very local effects. So let's think about a sea breeze. And we've got this little example of a cool ocean and hot land. Now, I'm thinking that a good example of hot land might be the Central Valley of California. Now, does it get hot there? Yeah. Does it get very hot there? Yeah, okay. And it's interesting because it gets so hot in the Central Valley, hot air rises very strongly and pools cold air from the Pacific Ocean inland. So basically, the hotter it gets in the Central Valley, 
the cooler it actually gets in Livermore and in Berkeley and in Dublin. So it's kind of not fair, but that's, that's how it works in the summertime here. At night, we have the opposite effect, where over land, it's actually cooler than over the water. So hot air rises over the water, pulling cold air across from the land. So this is called a sea breeze and a land breeze. And these also affect wind patterns. So with this knowledge of how the wind actually works, we need to think about how we can harness that energy to generate the electrical energy that we need to use in our day-to-day -day life for our refrigerators and computers and iPods and cell phones and things like that. And there's a couple criteria that wind energy developers try to think about when they choose a good wind energy site. So first they want good wind conditions. And good wind conditions mean strong wind without a lot of turbulence at a relatively high speed. And they would like it to be so that there are few obstacles like trees or forests or even buildings or even land upwind. So there's a lot of development in offshore wind power right now to use this feature. You also need to have access to a power grid connection if you're going to be generating a lot of electricity that you want to sell back to the power grid and make money. Or you just need to have a connection to your house if you're just trying to get your house off of the power grid. If you're installing a large windmill or a large turbine, th these really big windmills are called turbines, <clears throat> if you're installing a large turbine, you need to make sure that your soil conditions are such that they can support a really massive piece of equipment like this. And I was able to visit a factory of a wind turbine manufacturer a few months ago, and the hub of these is about the size of four SUVs put together. These are big pieces of equipment. So the soil needs to be relatively strong. And finally, you need to be concerned about the environmental impacts of your area. So you don't want to set a lot of turbines in an area where birds like to migrate. So let's think about how the weather causes wind resources to vary across our nation. This is a map of the United States, and the colors indicate areas where my colleagues at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory think are optimal locations for siding wind turbines because of the meteorology. So you see that here in California, especially off the coast, we have big wind resources, and there are other areas that have pretty significant wind resources, like Altamont and the Tehachapi Pass in Southern California. And through the Midwest, we have a tremendous wind resource as well. And then areas off the East Coast and in the Gulf of Mexico have good wind resources. So I'm looking at the time, and I'm thinking that people are probably ready for a stretch break. Yeah? yeah? OK, good. Well, we have one scheduled for you. So what I would like you to do is listen to me read the question, and then I'll read each of the answers, each of these states. And when I get to the answer that you think is correct, I want you to stand up and cheer. Okay? So let's have an example of stand up and cheer. Everybody stand up and go, woohoo! Stand up and go, woohoo! Okay. Okay, now sit back down. Okay. So it's good. It's good to stretch, but it's also good to sit back down quietly. <laughs> okay, so my first question is, what state is the home or was the home of the first wind gold rush? Now, when I say gold rush, that might give you a little bit of a hint that a lot of people were trying to make a lot of money off of wind energy. So does anybody think that the first gold rush was in Washington state? Okay. How about California? Yeah, stand up. Okay. Do we have any Texas fans out there? Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
Now, before you decide, yeah. oh, <laughs> before you decide if you're going to cheer for North Dakota, I was born in North Dakota, so lots, lots more people. Oh, okay. Okay. Anybody else for North Dakota? No. Okay. Okay. So the correct answer is California. So most of the wind farms uh, that you're probably familiar with in the Altamont Pass or in Palm Springs were actually planted, and people say planted when they talk about planting wind farms. Um, they were planted in the 1980s and 1990s when there was a lot of interest in developing renewable energy. If you look at the meteorology and if you look at these wind resource maps, like what we show here, and here red and yellow and orange indicate good and excellent wind resources, what state do you think has the best wind or the largest wind capacity? So first, who thinks it's Washington with all of that red right up there? Okay, one person. Good for you. <laughs> How about California? We've got lots of orange and yellow and red. California? Okay. How about Texas? We hear a lot about T. Boone Pickens. Yeah, okay, okay. And my home state of North Dakota. Yay, okay. We'll talk about North Dakota a little bit more later in the talk. Um, not just because it's where I was born, but there's a lot of wind energy generating capacity in North Dakota. And we'll return to that. So now we are going to talk about what state has installed the most wind capacity. And by installed, I mean how many turbines have they put in and how big are those turbines? So I don't think you have any information that I've given you that gives you the answer to that question. So this is all on your own. So are we talking about Washington State? Washington! <laughs> how about California? Yay! How about Texas? Yeah. And North Dakota? Yeah. Okay, I like my California friends, or my North Dakota friends over there. So the, the answer is actually Texas. So as you, as you may know from TV and movies, Texas has had a long history of generating energy from oil, for example, and in West Texas, where there used to be a lot of oil resources, so, excuse me, there are actually a lot of wind resources as well. And they have been very proactive about installing lots of wind turbines and building the very important transmission lines, those power lines that you see overhead, um, to carry the energy from where it's generated to where it is actually used in cities like Dallas and Houston and Austin. Okay, so let's think about how a turbine or a windmill actually works. So here we have on the left an array or a set of mini turbines and the wind is blowing. And if we zoom in on this individual turbine, you see the blades. And these blades can be really big. I mean, there are small residential turbines with blades that are about as big as my arm span. But some of the really big ones have blades that are 126 meters long. Okay, so that is longer than a football field. That is about the wingspan of a 747 would fit within that. So these are big. But they're also apparently moving slowly. And there's a very complicated series of gears that operate to transmit that power through a system of gears and shafts down to a generator, which is located here, usually at the back of the hub or the back of the nacelle of the turbine. So Brett's going to come out now and I think perhaps ask for some volunteers. Okay. 
All right, let's introduce our brave volunteers here. Tell us your name and where you're from, what grade? Jason Sheeler, and I'm in sixth grade, and I come from Joe Mitchell School. Let's give him a hand. Thank you. I'm Mark DeWay. I come from Williams Middle School from Tracy, and I'm in eighth grade. Okay. Thanks, guys, for coming up. All right, so we're scaling down our uh, model here, obviously. But this is actually a pretty cool kit that I'm thinking I want to get one of these, too. Julie found this, and her husband helped her put it together. These guys said it kind of looks like Legos, and pretty similar. It's got... Uh, you start from scratch and you build this thing, and it's got the gears and it's got a motor. And uh, if you think about it, it's kind of opposite of what this box fan is doing. We're taking electricity here and we're converting electricity into wind. Well, this thing here, this our scaled down turbine, is going to, it's going to take, um, hello, it's going to take wind and convert into electricity. There we go. Got all my thoughts here. And there is a little light in the back here, so we're going to see if we can get this to work. Um, first show, it didn't work out that well, but we made some adjustments, so let's see how it works. Go ahead and hold that right down here on this black piece of tape. We're going to start with our fan on medium. See if we can get that to turn. You're doing great. Perfect. It is turning. Applause. I don't see a light yet. Oh, wait, it gets better. It gets better. So let's go ahead and turn up to high. Is it? Yeah. So okay, let's move it in a little light. bit closer and see what happens now. Stop at that other piece of gray tape. Cheer ah. on the turbine. Hey, look at that. We have electricity. Okay, good job. All right, let's go ahead and turn the fan off. We have one more little model for you. A little different um, size scale here. I'll trade you. I'll let you grab that one down for me right there. Okay. Same concept here, just a little different model. Pre-constructed one. So do the same thing. Put on medium. Okay, nothing yet. How about high? Still nothing. Let's move it in, see what happens. A little closer, a little closer. Let's see. Jump started. Hello, there yeah. it goes. Yeah. Now the light's in a different location on this one. It's actually down in the neck of the bottle. So, yeah. Any light there? It's kind of hard to see in there. No? Let's go really close. That's interesting because this one lit up the first show and the other one didn't, but normally it would. I'm not sure what's going on. Oh, well, we got one or two. That's not bad. Okay, thank you, guys. I'll escort you back. Okay, so... We have seen that by this complicated system of mini gears and, and moving shafts, the, the turbine or the windmill can actually generate electricity from the power of the wind. And I'll just point out that there's normally a lot of product testing that goes into wind turbines, so the reliability issues that we have had here on stage are not representative of what happens with turbines that are actually used on an industrial scale. So when you think about collecting power from the wind, you have to think about the effect of the atmosphere. And here we have a movie that basically shows a disk of air moving through moving wind turbine blades. And it's that disk of air that's actually doing the work. So it's actually mass exerting a force on the blades and making them move. So you would like that disk to be as big as possible to generate as much power as possible. And towards that um, idea, you'd like to have very long blades 
to increase the area of the windmill disk. Now, some of you might remember that the formula for area of a disk is pi r squared. So as the radius of one of these blades increases, the power will actually go up by a factor of two. We also have to think about the wind speed. And the power equation works so that as we increase wind speed by a little bit, we increase power by a lot. So here we have on the x-axis some wind speeds, starting at low wind speeds here, close to zero, and high wind speeds up here. And when we double the speed of the wind for this case, if we go from 8 miles per hour to 16 miles per hour, we actually increase by a factor of 8, 2 times 2 times 2, the amount of power that you collect from the wind. So this goes from like 350 watts per meter squared to 2,500 watts per meter squared. So if you're siting a wind turbine, you want to make sure that you have a location that has strong, high winds that are reliable for a long time. Finally, there's also an impact of the density of the air because we're thinking about the mass of this disk as it moves through. So if you took the exact same turbine and the exact same wind speed and you had one example of that close to the ocean, close to the Pacific Ocean, and one example at the top of the Sierras, which one do you think would actually collect more power? So who's cheering for the Pacific Ocean site? Okay, good. And who's cheering for the Sierra site? Yeah. Well, the, the Sierra has its benefits in, in other ways, but air is actually more dense at sea level, closer to the ocean. So because it's more dense, it has more mass, and therefore it can move, it can actually generate more power when it interacts with wind turbine blades or with windmill blades. So let's think about energy demands. And I don't know how many of you get to actually look at your parents' utility bills, but it might be useful to do that every now and then and then maybe tell your parents thank you for paying the bills for your computer and your iPod, etc. But if we think about a house, a typical house in the United States, over the course of a year, we'll probably use 10,000 kilowatt hours a year. Now, we know what a watt is. We know that those little light bulbs are about 100 watts. And we know that a kilo, or at least I hope you know that a kilo, means 1,000 of those watts. So this basically means that a house in the United States with air conditioning, refrigerator, washing machine, dishwasher, and all that kind of stuff will use 10,000 kilowatt hours per year. So if you took the number from your parents' utility bill every month and added it up, it would be around 10,000. Now, let's think about an industrial-scale wind turbine, like the one that is pictured here on the side. This will typically generate about 2.5 to 3 million kilowatt hours per year, assuming typical wind behavior. So that means that for Livermore, where we have approximately 22,000 homes, and so each of these little houses represents 100 houses, we would actually only need 100 one-megawatt turbines, in theory, to power our city, or at least our domestic energy use in our homes, for a year. That's, that's pretty small when you think about it. And if we think about our national energy demands, we have 110 million households, and that means that we use about 1.1 billion kilowatt hours per year. And that is a lot of energy use. And that works out to be about 400,000 one-megawatt turbines. So that is a lot of energy, or a lot of wind turbines that would have to be used to generate that much electricity from the wind. But if you think about the wind resources that we have available, 
The Tehachapi Pass Wind Farm is located in Southern California near ba Bakersfield, and that is actually scheduled to provide power for two million homes, not at peak production and not at its worst production, but at its average production, two million homes. And that's just one farm in California. And if we go back to my home state of North Dakota, meteorologists and wind resource assessment uh, scientists have sat down and calculated how much energy North Dakota could theoretically generate from wind energy. And that number is 1.2 billion kilowatt hours a year. So if you go back to see, um, we need 1.1 billion kilowatt hours a year. And if we go forward to North Dakota, we see 1.2. So in theory, at least, North Dakota could provide the electricity for our homes. Now, it's actually much more complicated than that because there's a lot of wind resource in North Dakota, but people tend not to live there for some reason. And we need to get that electricity transported from North Dakota to, say, Chicago, to California, to New York, to other population centers. So that means that our country would have to invest significantly in building transmission lines so that we can move power from place to place. And there are also occasions when the wind doesn't actually blow the way that you expect it to or the way that you want it to. And one of the solutions to that is to connect large areas with a large supergrid. So this map is, set, is one that I've taken from some documents uh, from the European Union and from a company called Airtricity, where they have proposed the development of the supergrid that will move energy from offshore wind farms all around Europe. It will collect solar energy, or it will use farms that are collecting solar energy in North Africa and bring that energy back up to Europe. And then there are onshore wind farms as well. Because the idea is that if you have good weather conditions for producing wind in northern Europe, you might not have that in southern Europe, but it doesn't matter because northern Europe can send energy to southern Europe and vice versa. When the wind is, is not blowing in northern Europe, it's probably blowing in southern Europe. And there have been some very careful studies about this, um, some of them done by our colleagues at Stanford University, Christina Archer and Mark Jacobson, where they've looked at how big does an area have to be to, to integrate um, energy from many different wind farms so that you'll have reliable energy from the wind. So I'm a meteorologist, and I like to talk about the weather, and I like to run computer models that predict what the weather's going to be like. And there's a role for meteorologists here in understanding when the wind will blow so the people who run utility grids and transmission lines and things like that can expect a certain amount of energy from the wind or when they need to make other plans for where they'll get their power. So this is a picture of output from one of these weather models. And we can see in green where we expect that there will be rain. But there are also these little barbs that show what direction the wind is blowing and how strong the, the wind is blowing for that case. So we can use meteorological models to forecast the amount of energy that can be collected from the wind. And at Livermore, we also use extremely high-resolution simulations where we can look at individual valleys and hills, like in the Altamont, and understand, using the laws of physics and using observations that we've collected, what's actually going to happen to the wind patterns. So in this particular figure, the wind was really blowing from the left, but by the time the wind interacts with different temperatures, um, so different parts of the atmosphere had different temperatures, then you get this very complicated pattern where there's flow down here, there's flow back to the left in that direction, and it reverses again aloft. So the atmosphere can be very complicated, but we can use computer simulations to figure out and anticipate what will actually happen in terms of wind energy. 
So I talked about transmission lines, and we know that those are extremely expensive, but we also know that the electrical grid in the United States is pretty much at its capacity right now, so we're going to have to expand that anyway. So let's think about the other cost factors for renewable energies. So photovoltaics are a kind of um, way of collecting energy from the sun, like solar panels. And the costs of energy for these types of renewable energy, and this is where you should be looking at your paper again, if you're not already. Okay, good, very good. So the cost of energy for photovoltaics from 1980 to 2025 has consistently been decreasing. So this point here is where we are now, and the rest in light orange is a forecast. If we look at concentrated solar power, where you set up big mirrors in the desert and focus those mirrors in on some water, heat that water, and then drive a turbine that will generate electricity like our demonstrations did, that cost has also been decreasing. And if you look at the cost of wind energy, the cost has decreased from about um, 45 or 50 cents per kilowatt hour in 1980 down to now, which is about five, kilo, five cents per kilowatt hour, and then it's anticipated to decrease on beyond that. So energy costs money, and depending on the choices that we make as a society, these costs can go down even more, or they may rise again. And just for comparison, I've pointed out that wind is right now around five cents per kilowatt hour, and coal is where we often get a lot of our electricity right now. And coal is running at about one cent per kilowatt hour, so wind is, is more expensive than coal right now, but the way that we account for the cost of coal isn't actually very complete. And so if we start taking into account the carbon dioxide emissions from coal, then the costs of coal might actually change. The costs of oil, on the other hand, which we use for driving our cars and, and fueling airplanes and things like that, jet fuel, that's also around four cents per kilowatt hour. So wind is comparable to oil right now. Okay, so the Department of Energy and the American Wind Energy Association several years ago decided to figure out what would happen or what would need to happen if we decided that we were going to, as a society, get 20% of our electrical demands from wind energy by the year 2030. And they decided that, well, because we won't be using as much coal or other natural gas sources, we would have reduced greenhouse gas emissions. We would also save a lot of water. So you probably realize that uh, nuclear energy and coal actually use quite a bit of, of water during the energy generation process. And concentrated solar energy also uses a lot of water. So if we use a lot of wind energy, we won't be using all that water, and we can actually drink it and, and, do it and irrigate crops with it and other things like that. We will probably reduce natural gas prices. And we'll expand manufacturing in this country because these wind turbine blades are huge and you need to have factories to build them and people to work on building them. So we see a role for expanded manufacturing. There's also the possibility that uh, people who own land in areas where there's a lot of wind energy resources, that they'll be able to um, site turbines on their land and generate local revenue in rural areas. So I have many relatives in rural Iowa, and the possibility of siting a wind turbine on their farm and then still farming 95% of the land, that, that's actually kind of, kind of attractive to them. So if this has been interesting to you, and if you think that this is something exciting that you might want to get into, there are many career possibilities in the wind energy industry. And of course, I would be very happy if you decided to become a meteorologist like myself. And with meteorology, you can do a lot more besides just wind energy, like this woman who is studying hurricanes and predicting them. 
There's also a lot of work in engineering, so you need to have good science and math skills to design new turbines, new turbine blades, and the gearboxes that are very complicated. And I mentioned before that there's an important role for improved transmission systems. So electricity distribution is another field where we'll need a lot of work done. There's manufacturing, as I talked about. Um, there are many turbine manufacturing facilities in the United States. Um, Siemens Energy, who contributed some of our prizes today, actually has a blade um, manufacturing facility in Iowa. And there will be a lot of work in wind turbine installation. And if the people who do the predictions and the designing of the turbines do their work correctly, there won't be that much work in repair and maintenance, but there might be some work in that as well. So, to summarize what we hope you've learned today, um, human beings have consistently used the wind throughout history. We've used it for transportation, we've used it for energy, and we've used it for fun. Uh, the wind develops from three forces, the pressure gradient force, the Coriolis force induced by the rotation of the Earth, and the forces of friction. Wind resources due to local meteorology and how the terrain varies actually vary quite a bit around our nation. And when we did our little example of wind resources in Livermore, Livermore's current average energy demands are sufficient, or could be met sufficiently with the average production from just 100 of these one megawatt turbines or windmills that we see here on the left. And finally, we can use weather forecasting tools to help integrate wind energy into our power grid system. So I will now take some questions and hopefully provide some answers to you guys. And I would like to remind you that your papers will be stamped for your teachers who may be looking for that stamp after the Q&A session. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.